the stares he got from people and the whispers and people just objectify. As soon as you look graphically ill, people yeah. objectify you because they don't want to think that could happen to me. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. This week, in honor of the 9th International Comics and Medicine Conference taking place as we go to air, we're featuring an interview with graphic novelist Marissa Moss. Marissa and others are part of a movement called Graphic Medicine, which explores the interaction between the medium of comics and the conversation around healthcare. You can learn more about graphic medicine by checking out the show notes for this episode, which originally aired in September of 2017. Here's the show. Children's book author Marissa Moss has been telling stories by mixing words and pictures for decades. Best known for her popular Amelia's Notebook series, which sold over 5 million copies, Marissa recently published a graphic novel unlike any of her previous work. For one thing, it's aimed at adults. Last Things, a graphic memoir about ALS, is the true and deeply personal story of how she coped with the devastating effects of her husband's illness. Marissa's husband, Harvey Stahl, was diagnosed 16 years ago with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease. A longtime professor of medieval art at the University of California, Berkeley, Stahl was also a renowned historian of French Gothic art and culture. He died at age 61, less than seven months after his diagnosis. Marissa Moss joins us today from Berkeley, California, to talk about her graphic memoir, Last Things. Marissa, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So, as I mentioned before, we started the intro. I have so many questions for you. I guess we can start out by my asking you, when did you actually start thinking about writing this memoir, since it was published 16 years after your husband died? Yeah, it was a, a very long genesis, although I actually started writing it two weeks after he died. So the information is incredibly fresh. People ask me how I could remember exactly what people said, but it was etched in stone in my mind, and it was right after. Because I had a friend who's a writer who ran a workshop in her home, mm-hmm. and as we're going through this horrendous, catastrophic illness, she said, come to my class. It will help you to write about what's going on. It will help you to see what's happening. And so I agreed. What neither of us knew is that, in fact, mm-hmm. he ended up dying a week before class started. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, so I went to class. I, I signed up for this class thinking I was going to be right about what we were going through, and instead it became retrospective, what we had gone through. Uh-huh. But it was really valuable because you, when you're going through something like this, it's like a Mack truck has hit your house, and you don't know what is happening. You are just in survival mode. You can do nothing but react. You can't really process what you're going through. So the writing helped me think about what was that. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it, so I wrote it very fresh and raw from the experience. And the reason why it took so long is because for the first 10 years, I was rewriting it and revising it and revising it as a traditional memoir, meaning text only, mm-hmm. because that's what I thought memoirs had to be. Mm-hmm. And I sent it to agents and they would say, powerful writing, powerful story, too sad. Nobody wants a story that's so sad. Can you make it have a happy ending? 
But, you know, spoiler alert, he died. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't do that. I mean, and the whole point of writing the book for me was to combat this pervasive cultural stereotype we have that serious illness makes you ennobled or saintly. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. I mean, maybe it does in a few rare cases, but I think for the majority of cases, it's just hard, hard, ugly work. It's just brutal. Yeah. And I think what happens is that that adds to the difficulty of dealing with illness, at least it did for me, because I felt like, what? where's this noble, saintly thing that's supposed to happen, making us closer, and we're supposed to really value every minute of every day, and everything's supposed to be honed with this incredible intensity, and it wasn't like that. It was my husband being very angry and locked off in denial, right. and me juggling my young kids and insurance and doctors and Harvey and my work, because I kept on working. Right. So I wanted, I wasn't writing that Hollywood memoir. That, Tuesdays with Maury. <laughs> right. It was, I was, yeah, exactly. It was, I was against the Tuesdays with Maury syndrome, which makes this, you know, pearls of wisdom drop from the dying people's mouths, which uh-huh. is not what happens for many people. But that made it hard to publish. And it wasn't, it wasn't until 10 years down that I realized, well, I, with the graphic novel explosion, that I realized I was fighting my own best instincts, which is to tell stories as a mixture of words and pictures. It's what I did mm-hmm. when I came up with a notebook format with Amelia's Notebook 20-odd years ago. When it was, that was an oddball. When Amelia's Notebook first came out, publishers did not know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. There was no Diaries of a Wimpy Kid. That right. whole format did not exist. And when I sent that first Amelia's Notebook out, publishers all said no because... They said, what is this? It's not a novel. It's not a picture book. Librarians won't know how to shelve it. Booksellers Mm -hmm. won't know how to sell it. We just can't do it. It's too weird. And it took a small press in Berkeley to take a chance on it. And then it just took off because we do think that way. We think sometimes in words and pictures, which is why I think that's why graphic novels have such a powerful attraction. For sure. When I realized, wait, I could do that. I can turn this into a graphic novel because now graphic novels are hot. You're allowed to do that. And I was inspired by uh, Roz Chaff. Oh, yeah, talk sure. about something more pleasant. <laughs> right. And I have that one too. Small stitches. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that I th- which is powerful. I think your prose instinct, the fact that this particular comic, this graphic novel is so chock full of information is a real reflection of the prose, you know, the way the, yes. the memoir. Yeah. Because as I was reading this, I was thinking, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm learning so much. I am experiencing so many different emotions here. I am on this roller coaster with her. And now that you mention it, I see that the prose was essential to get to this info-packed, emotional-packed. This yeah, book. I think you're right. I couldn't have I couldn't have just out of the gate wrote it, written it as a graphic novel. I had to go through all those many revisions to crystallize it down into the essence of the story. It kind of, it's kind of how the process I had to go through. It took a long time, but right. it was necessary, I guess. Yeah. Well, on the question of process, um, you used photos here and there, and I was wondering how you decided where to place them. I thought in one of them in particular, alongside a panel where Simon asks, who will teach Asa to ride a bike or tie his shoe, you actually blacked out Harvey. And I thought, wow, that was really (laughs) effective. So there aren't that many photos in the book, but where you placed them was really strategic. Did you think about using more? You know, it's funny. It's interesting that it seems so strategic because it was just gut. It was just my visual instinct. Here I want to, here's where I need to put a photo. Right. The informational inserts were also really helpful. Thank you for the ALS primer. (laughs) 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 And I also thought it was interesting that as the book progresses and Harvey gets weaker, the handwriting for his dialogue gets more scraggly and his his hair also seems to recede more. Was I imagining that? 
No, he just, he aged so much. He was, he, I mean, Harvey was older than me, but he looked really young. He looked like he was in his 30s when we met, and he was uh-huh. in his 40s. I had no idea that he was 18 years older than me. Uh-huh. And the disease aged him dramatically. Uh-huh. And the, the shaky dialogue was my way of conveying the way that people speak when they have bulbar ALS, because they can't use their tongue muscles. And your tongue is a lot of what helps you articulate. Right. So imagine that you have no control over the muscles of your tongue and think about how you're going to talk. Right. Tell us a little bit about the form of ALS that he had, and for folks who don't know, the symptoms. So he had bulbar ALS, which I gather is less common than what you commonly think of as the ALS that starts with weakness in your walking or your arms. So when it's in your outer limbs, that's what I think most people associate. That's the Tuesdays with Maury kind of ALS, where uh-huh. you suddenly it's harder for you to walk or you stumble your trip. With bulbar ALS, the muscles that are first affected are the ones basically in, kind of in the back of your head. So it's speech, swallowing, breathing. And most people, how they die from ALS is when, you know, your diaphragm is a muscle that helps your lungs pull air in and push it out. Mm-hmm. When that muscle stops working, you can't breathe. And so most people from ALS, that's how they die. They're dying from their breathing muscles no longer working. Mm-hmm. And with Harvey, that was very rapid because his breathing was affected quickly. Two months after the diagnosis, his breathing was so compromised, we had to make the decision of whether he would get a trach and go on a ventilator or not. And that is not a usual decision for someone with ALS. Most people, that's the line they draw. They're not going to go on a ventilator. That's when they'll die. And he was very resistant to that and resistant to it. A lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. But to be fair, I don't think we were really, we were presented with the ventilator as if he could go on and off it. But in fact, by the time he went on it, there was no taking him off it. And because he could still walk and move his arms, he certainly felt weak because he wasn't getting the oxygen he needed. But we thought, oh, once he gets the oxygen he needs, he'll have more energy. Mm-hmm. So on the subject of, you know, knowing or not knowing what to do next, what course of action to take. Can you talk a little bit about the medical advice that you were getting? Um, You got advice from a doctor who didn't know ALS. You had a pulmonary doctor who didn't realize that ALS demands different treatment. Can you talk a little bit about the treatment and the medical assistance that you got or didn't get? Yeah, we were lucky in the sense that there is an ALS clinic near us. There's one at UCSF. Uh And we live in the Bay Area. And in fact, people come all over Northern California to go to that clinic. That was something that we really needed. But we quickly learned that any doctor that did not have experience with ALS was, in fact, useless because they would give us information or advice that wasn't relevant to someone with ALS. It's a very particular disease. And in fact, we live in Berkeley. And when Harvey was first hospitalized, there isn't even a neurology department in the local hospital. Wow. Yeah. Surprising. Kind of shocking. But even the doctors didn't give us all the information we needed to make the decision about the trach or the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't know until after, really after he had the surgery, that that would entail suctioning his lungs day and night. I mean, no one mentioned that. That wasn't even in the informational pamphlet or the video they gave us. Mm-hmm. I only got that information from people I called who had spouses on ventilators. The nurse, Kathy, gave you those names that you so bravely called. The neurologist, called. actually. She had a list. She had a she list had of a people list. who had spouses of, on ventilators. And that was really brave one. of you. 
throughout this book, I was just constantly impressed by how, and I'm sure that you felt conflicted during the entire thing, but how you just went right at it. And yet Harvey took away from you certain power. Harvey had always encouraged you and you wrote, now it's my turn to have faith in him. And you were so ready to, quote, deal with whatever's causing his stutter. And yet he took charge. He would decide when to tell the boys their school, his university. Right. That must have been really rough for you. Yeah. Can you but at ta- the same time, I mean, he's the one who's losing control of everything. I had to give him whatever he could take. Yeah. Can you talk about the isolating effects of grief and loss? It was so palpable. You were isolated from your kids, from Harvey, and then how you learned later that his lack of empathy was ALS-related. Right. I wish I, I, wish I had known. Uh-huh. I really wish I had known. I mean, we learned that towards the end of the disease, and now, in fact, I gave a copy of this to his neurologist to read, uh, she blurbed it, and we had a long talk, oh. and she said, you know, now we know. We mm-hmm. didn't know then, but we know now that a significant number of ALS sufferers have these cognitive issues. Mm-hmm. But it was, Harvey was part of the, the test group. They were just starting to test for cognitive effects of ALS that year. Mm-hmm. So we just didn't know it. But I think beyond that, I think there's an issue in our culture, in our society, that catastrophic illness is really isolating. And I didn't... It was in the text version, the prose version of the memoir, but I didn't put it too much in this book, in the graphic novel version. But you lose a lot of friends. People you think are your friends aren't because yeah. they can't, they just disappear. And I, I, there's no judgment. I mean, sure. it's, hard, it's hard to be around someone who's graphically dying. No one likes it. And we as a culture are particularly bad at it because we want death to happen over here off screen Right. Nice and tidy. Mm-hmm. We don't want to see the messy parts of it. But there were people, you know, you learned the people you could count on because I was trying to ask for help picking up the boys from school or could you do this or could you do that? And some people stepped up and really helped and other people just vanished. And it's just part of dealing with death and illness. And even just going to the, like I, the first thing Harvey did when we, he came home with the trach is he wanted to go out and buy a steak. Because he didn't, I'm a vegetarian. He did not trust me mm-hmm. to choose a good steak. Believe me, I learned how to choose a good steak. <laughs> but the stares he got from people and the whispers and people just objectify. As soon as you look graphically ill, yeah. people objectify you because they don't want to think that could happen to me. They want to think it's something you did, like you didn't eat right, or you didn't exercise, and you caused it. Oh, it's so part true. of our culture, which, which makes it even worse. And that's what I mean by the isolation. You immediately feel like you're part of the bad people who had something horrible happen for a reason. You caused it somehow. I was going to ask, why are so many of us ill-equipped to talk about death? I think you kind of covered that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's one of the awkward things that happens. And then, you know, after someone's died, saying that you're a widow, boy, that's, people really don't want to talk about that. It's yeah. awkward. It's yeah. so awkward. And right. it's why, for, for my sons, it was really awful. They didn't want to be the kid with the dying dad and right. then the kid with the dead dad. So one of my sons, in fact, changed schools so he would have a blank slate so nobody would know. Uh-huh. One of my sons didn't tell anybody. Even when he went off, when he applied to college, he filled out his application as if Harvey were still alive. Nobody knew his father was dead. He was really private about it because that stigma is just... Wow awkward. It's awkward. People don't know what to say, and you end up feeling worse about it. Right. I was really fascinated by the fact that you wrote who I am as a Jew was strongly shaped by him. And you wrote, what kind of a Jew will I be without him? 
I'd love for you just to talk about Judaism and to explain for listeners the rituals. Well, the, I was surprised by how much the ritual helped. I mean, Judaism, unlike American culture, Jewish culture is really good at death. What a surprise. Uh-huh. We've had a lot of experience with it. <laughs> um, Greeks so are the, the same. We, I'm Greek. Okay. The, we don't, I bet, oh, yeah, I bet yeah, you would. Exactly. Yeah, we have those and rituals. Those cultures, that, those cultures and rituals really, they're like, tried and true for millennia, and they do help yeah. because they give you a place to put your grief, and they also acknowledge your grief. Judaism acknowledges that you need to grieve, and in fact, every Shabbat, there's a part of the service where those who are grieving stand up and say Kaddish, and you are recognized and allowed to grieve every single week, mm-hmm. and that's kind of, I didn't, re- I didn't realize the power of it. I, mean, I knew it was part of the service, but... And I'd said Kaddish for my grandfather but, and for my grandmother, but it was... What is Kaddish? Can you explain that for the oh, listeners? it's a prayer for the dead. It's a, a prayer, prayer for, for the dead, dead that really doesn't say anything about death, but it's just an affirmation of life. Mm-hmm. And the, the part of Judaism that helps is that, first of all, you know, you start with the, with the ritual of the burial where you shovel three shovelfuls of dirt onto the coffin. Mm-hmm. And there is no worse sound than dirt hitting a coffin. It's mm-hmm. just you don't, you feel the pit of your stomach. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the finality of that. You know, that person is really dead. Mm-hmm. That lets you go in some ways. Now you, you can grieve. You can, because, I mean, you know, the Kubler-Ross stages about, you know, bargaining, denial, whatever. Right. But you, right. you, you have a big shortcut where you're going right to, okay, this person is right. dead. <laughs> right. There's nothing like burial. And then sitting Shiva where you have, a period where people come to your house and they share stories and there's this intense grieving. Mm-hmm. And it's then, very cathartic. It is really cathartic. And you don't even set a headstone on until like a year later. You actually cap off your year with a literal mm-hmm. end cap. Of right. That's when you put the, the tombstone on. Mm-hmm. And all of that was, was surprisingly helpful. I yeah. mean, it gave me a place to put the grief. It gave me permission to grieve. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure Greek culture does the same thing. You're given it a does. place to put it. Yeah, it was actually, I found when my father died in 2009, he died in 2009, two days before Thanksgiving, and I was surprised at how helpful those rituals were for me because I'm not religious. And uh, we have a 40-day period where the deceased is said to be traveling the earth just as Christ did before his resurrection, and, and that's when, you know, allegedly, the deceased is joined with God. But I, I found that very, very helpful, and I was surprised by that. The um, theme of gratitude is a recurring theme in the book. In the beginning, you talk about things we're grateful for, and then later, as Harvey retreats more and more into himself, you recall first on a drive home alone. Um, you recall your elaborate surprise party. Can you talk a bit about the role of gratitude in the book? Well, I hadn't had, I hadn't even thought about that as a theme. You're really? the first person to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I think it's really touching because you're in the midst of this incredible loss and yet you appear to be clinging to things that you can still be grateful for. Well, yeah, I think that's I think that's what you have to do for your sanity and partly I was trying to rem- I had to re- actively remind myself who Harvey really was mm-hmm. because Harvey sick was a different person. I really felt like he was a changeling in a Grimm's fairy tale. Like mm-hmm. some, somebody had replaced my loving, wonderful husband with this churlish, angry, icy cold person. That, and that was when I didn't know about the cognitive effects of ALS. I just, there was just this dramatic change in his personality. 
And for Asa, my youngest son, who was six when his dad died, his right. memories of his dad were these negative memories. It was his yeah. not nice father. And he basically has had to recover through his brothers who his father really was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows yeah. now that wasn't yeah. that. I mean, he knew. I mean, I, I tried to tell him then, but of course you tell a six-year-old that's not really your dad. What is, he can only see what's right that? in front of him. Right. <laughs> it was very hard for him to process. Yeah. But yeah. I was, we were trying to give him a sense of, you know, he really had a wonderful father. He may not remember his wonderful father, but he did <laughs> right. have a wonderful father. I thought you used dark humor really well. There's a point at which Asa was finally allowed to have a friend over, and Harvey allowed friends right. into the house. <laughs> and Asa said something like, that's my dad. But it was, it was a matter of factness of kids, which I loved. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is my yeah. dad. He can't breathe. He's, that's why he's got this hole in his throat and his attachment machine. And his friend said, okay. Yeah, okay. No worries. And then, <laughs> okay, and then, yeah. <laughs> and then... And, and it was so refreshing after the weird stares you get from, you oh, know, grown-ups. Yeah. yeah. And then there was a point where you were at, at a gas station when Celia from Optal, the vet, oh, she came and she told you it was defective and you wrote, well, so why did you come? <laughs> <laughs> I love that dark humor. It was really good. Um, Back to Asa. I love the magical paperclip bracelet. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. So Asa was having a lot of nightmares, as not surprising, because there's these dramatic changes in his family. And it was um, his cousin, my sister's daughter, who gave him the idea that if he wore this bracelet, it would magically get rid of all the nightmares. And maybe because he loves Lisa, he believed it. And believing works. It was a placebo effect that actually really worked. So he'd wear this paperclip bracelet and miraculously his nightmares stopped. Or at least they weren't as bad. Mm -hmm. But the problem, of course, with paperclip bracelets is that they fall apart very easily. So after making dozens of paperclip bracelets, I realized we're just going to buy some beaded bracelets. So I bought a slew of those as well because those also break. Mm -hmm. And then he ended up making a bracelet, a beaded bracelet. He happened to make one in Hebrew school. Hmm. This was after Harvey died because hmm. he was still he was he wore that bracelet until it actually frayed and fell apart right before his bar mitzvah when he turned thirteen. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's good timing. Yeah, so I wonder. I was wondering, has he going to go through high school wearing these bracelets? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, he drank straws into adulthood, from what you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> well, straws. Away all the straws. The straws. I mean, it's just yeah, these these ritual ways of connecting yeah. and kind of. Yeah. Using objects to help you get through something really hard, especially when you're a kid. I think that's pretty powerful. And you um, did a lot of swimming. Talk about that, how that helps you. And I still do. Yeah, Good. I think swimming is what kept me sane. It was the only time I had just for myself. I wasn't taking care of the kids. I wasn't taking care of Harvey. I wasn't working. I wasn't dealing with insurance. It was just me in the water. And there's something especially powerful about that because and I wasn't, proud of it but it's there you're watching your husband lose his muscle mm-hmm. i mean he's graphically weaker every day and i when i swam was affirming my muscle yeah and building muscle interesting using yeah. muscle i was just like being body pure body as he is losing his body mm-hmm. and i just needed that psychologically uh-huh and venting was helpful i noticed that you vented yeah, yeah. I loved how you wrote about your older sister, Cleo, her usual tactless self. <laughs> I got to tell you. Everything really, he said, word that, for word, I got to tell you. <laughs> that, that really resonated with me. How did um, she react to the book? How did others react to the book? Well, I have to tell you, she's the one person I don't know, because I oh. didn't give her a copy. Oh. Um, <laughs> she hasn't purchased it yet. Uh, 
Yeah, she's got to buy her own copy. I have no idea. My other brothers and sisters, well, for for my family, it was very hard to read the book. It was heart-wrenching. And oh, sure. well, we lived through it. As Well, Harvey's siblings did too. But for Harvey's siblings, it was interesting. His sister especially, who was very close to Harvey, this book has become like a talisman to her. Mm-hmm. She won't let it out of her sight. She won't. If someone borrows it, they've got to bring it back quickly. She can't. She's got to have extra copies. Wow. For her, it's, it's him brought back to life, which yeah. I did not expect. Right. But, but it makes sense to me because you also celebrate him even as Yeah, you... I capture his good qualities. Yeah. But I feel a bad part of him, but she realizes, you know, that wasn't him. That was the disease. Right. So for her, this is like getting a part of her brother back. That's so sweet. That's really touching and a huge tribute to you, obviously. Well, I was very moved when I heard that. I was like, oh, good. Because I was worried about that. I wanted to capture the good things about Harvey. And that's hard to do when you're showing a disease wrecking havoc with him. Yeah. Will you talk about the lists that you found? Those were incredible. Those were heart-wrenching. Yeah, those were really, really hard to read. And I, and I have to say, my, you know, my sons did not read any of this until I had sold it to a publisher. And at that point, I asked them, do you want to read this? I mean, you have to read this, actually, and let me know, because I will not publish it if you don't want me to, and I will not use your real names if you don't want me to. Um, but they all read it, and they were all supportive, and the hardest parts for them were those lists because yeah. they had no idea. And I didn't know that that's what he was feeling. I wish he could have told me those things, but he was so shut off, and I think he was trying to survive as best, as best he could without being a burden on us, which is what those lists show. Uh-huh. I mean, for, he was terrified. Uh, for listeners, can you describe, for instance, what you found in one of the lists, if you can recall? I could read a oh, list sure. if you want me to. Oh, sure, we have to, to read something. You've got to read something from the book for sure. Uh, yeah, I was going to read something, but I can see if I can find one of those lists. So these were lists that he made when he was trying to figure out, first of all, whether to have the trach or not, mm-hmm. and then later, a list that he made. So this is one that he made before deciding to get the trach, like why he should do this. Is mm-hmm. that a good one to read? Sure. Okay. If I'm still ambulatory and can move and type and reach and do for myself, then having the trach and ventilator might be okay. You could sleep with Marissa, be with the kids. You might have more energy physically and intellectually. You might be able to speak some. You might be able to work on book or even teach. What kind of requisite care and how pay for it? Impact of strangers in house and time it takes to hire people. Impact on Marissa's work. Eventually lose ability to swallow. We'll need tube, no taste, no restaurants, going out, meals together, meals together, but you don't eat. Impact on boys. Eventually lose voice. How will boys talk to me? I to them. Synthesizer? Impact on boys. Will anyone want to study with me if I speak through a machine? Eventually lose mobility. Need many to help do everything. Wheelchair? So many split levels at home. How get around? can't speak, eat, move, barely breathe, just being kept alive, outrageous expensive, not worth it. So issues are, are you sure you can care for yourself with a ventilator? Does someone always have to be with me? Greater chance of respiratory diseases? More or less energy? What kind of mobility is there really? Investigate talking machines now and record some things. How stop respiration if I have trach? Clearly going downhill. What do? Only breathing getting worse, but losing weight, etc. So other problems probably not far behind. If trach, then hospital, and home with nurses, and locked into a machine. Ugh! But 
that you can walk and take care of yourself. Can't you? Even with your feelings so feeble? Is trach inevitable? Incredibly scary. End of this life? How connected are you? You've been getting remote as though slowly cutting self off, preparing self for departure. Aren't there things you want to do? E.g. travel, be with family, finish book, teach again. Not that teaching so important, but want to show that can do it, that not fell by this disease. I mean, that just broke my heart. Oh, my gosh. Did you feel like you were trespassing reading those when you found them? No, I felt like I wish, I wish, I wish he'd let me know because I feel like I could have borne some of that burden, that psychological, emotional burden. Yeah. And let him know that we wanted him, even if, because I know that a lot of what he felt towards the boys, I mean, he would tear up whenever he looked at them, was that he felt he wasn't a good father to them anymore. And I wanted him to know that he was a good father no matter what. Yeah. And even a crumb of Harvey was better than a lot of other fathers. Like, I felt like even getting part of him as a husband was better than anybody else I could imagine. I got that feeling. On your website, you note that each new book you create is, quote, hard in its own way and takes a lot of revising because you never get things right the first time. And it used to frustrate you, but now you expect it and you don't mind because that gives you permission to make mistakes. I wondered if you reached a similar point in caring for Harvey and feeling like at first you had to be perfect. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Oh my god! Oh my god! No, I, I, I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel like I could be perfect. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm not a trained nurse. I mean, learning to suction is not easy. Well, yeah, logistically speaking, <laughs> I mean, emotionally. No, I felt like I was. I felt like I was always, <laughs> always behind. I don't feel like I was ever close to perfect, and I felt like I made so many mistakes. You must have gotten a little bit better over time. Yeah, I got better at suctioning, and I got better, at, you know, replacing the inner cannula of the tray because. That's another thing where you basically have to do it quickly because he's not breathing while you're doing it. But I know I felt like I was never good at any of it. And I have a feeling that most caregivers feel like that. You're just incredibly frustrated because it's really hard work. And you never know what you're doing and you never know you're making the right choices. There is a beautiful part towards the end at the book's end. I really felt like I had earned that ending. (laughs) (laughs) I did too. Yeah, it's a pretty wrenching experience I'm making people go through. Well, it was like a release. I was curious to know how you slowly got back to living. You talk about this at the end of the book, how you reconnected and how you found your way back. Well, I think having the boys helped. I mean, if I hadn't had kids, I think I would have just stayed in bed and pulled the covers over my head for months. But kids make you focus. You know, they still want pickles in the refrigerator. They want something other than spaghetti for dinner. So I felt driven to try to normalize things for them. And I ended up doing a lot of author visits. And the ending you're talking about is an international author visit to Morocco. And I have to tell you that just this past February, I was invited back to that same school. And I ended up once again staying with a wonderful family. And they asked me, well, have you ever been to Morocco before? And I said, well, the last time I was here, it was shortly after my husband died. And it was actually really important for me because it helped me heal. And I told them the story about staying with this family where the father's um, brother had just had a new baby. And the dance they had for the mother, the new mother, welcoming her back to the community of the living and how I felt included in that. And that just was a shift for me. And mm-hmm. so the mother of this family, well, we're going to have a henna party because you get henna like before the father's 
party. You know, you always have henna before these major events in mm-hmm. Moroccan culture. Mm-hmm. So they, she invited her friends over and a woman to do the henna. And after everybody was all hennaed up, the women circled me and they did that, you know, thing that Arabic women do. I just burst into tears. Oh. It was they were they were recreating it for me. They were bringing me back. What a powerful experience! Really powerful. I felt like this is, the universe works in mysterious ways here. I'll say. And you also finished Harvey's book for him. <laughs> yes. Uh, wow, that uh, was a major undertaking. I was really was, impressed I, by that. <laughs> I thought a graduate student would do it for him, but I couldn't find a graduate student who would. Harvey had always told me somebody will do it, but he never told me who that, that uh-huh. mysterious someone would be. Uh-huh. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just do it. And um, I had help from a community of international medievalists who helped me with footnotes, which I am terrible at and don't care one thing about. They told me where I had to have them, what they should be. It was just a really a, a, a labor of love for a big community because Harvey had a lot of colleagues who really valued and cared about him. And they showed it in helping me finish this book. And now that it's out, and I, you know, I've given, I have to say, I've given copies to Harvey's siblings. I've given copies to our sons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think anybody's read it. I was just going to ask you, has anyone read it? <laughs> uh, you've got to really be an art historian to, to plow through it. But the la- I tell them the last chapter, which is the one I wrote entirely based on notes and lectures that he given, uh-huh. is the most readable for a, a lay <laughs> just person. Just go to the end. <laughs> Go to the end, right. Just go straight to the end. Well, you're not going to read about codicology, which is, you know, the science of how the pages are laid out and the right. bold that's put on them right. and how it's they're an measured. Or, book. It's an it's academic book. It's an academic yeah. book, exactly. Yeah. So your children grew up without their father. How are they doing now? Well, I think they're impressive. I mean, we, we talk about this, how we're, we're very different people than we would have been mm-hmm. had their father lived, but... My goal was that we would not fracture the family, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's certainly been met. We are we are very close, and they as brothers are very close, which makes me very happy. That's great. And how old are they now? We know that they were six, how, ten, and thirteen. They were. They were. Yeah, they were thirteen, ten, and six. Fourteen. I mean, Simon had just turned fourteen. Fourteen, ten, and six when Harvey died. So Simon is now twenty-nine. Yeah, sense. 29. Wow. Elias is 26, and Ace is 21. And Simon helped you with the book, as I understand, yes, right? Yes, he did, because he's, he's, he's an art director, and he helped lay out the book, and he created the font based on my handwriting. Uh-huh. I don't think he... It wasn't a project that he... Uh, it was easy <laughs> or pleasant for him, sure, but he sure. did a great job. Your yeah. kids are so interesting, though. Tell us what the others are doing. Uh, well, Elias, the I, middle one, he's the one who was a lone soldier for a while in Israel. He was in the special middle, forces. Right, he was a soldier, right. <laughs> yeah, he was a lone soldier. It was not, and he was Before there you? during the Gaza War. It was terrifying. I mean, I think he was trying to control. I think it was about oh, control. Interesting. Because, he, I mean, he was the one that after Harvey died, he slept with a knife under his pillow and water under his bed, like he was preparing for the zombie apocalypse. And, it, you know, he just had to be, he was in survivalist mode. Gosh. Like, he wanted to be ready for anything. And I think that's one reason why he joined the military. Like, if anything's going to prepare you for the zombie apocalypse, Israeli Special Forces, (laughs) that'll do it. Wow. But he's now now just graduated from the site, from the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. So he's not in the military now, thank goodness. And Asa just graduated from Johns Hopkins in physics and is today starting his 
graduate career in astrophysics at Rice in Houston. Oh, my God. Which I know would make Harvey so proud. First of all, he's back in Texas. Harvey was from Dallas. Right. And in fact, one of Harvey's childhood friends from Dallas is picking Asa up and winding and dining him and making sure he knows how to, she lives in Houston now. So he's being well taken care of. Gosh, that's great. That's really cool. Would be would be smiling about that. He would yeah. That. Well, I know that Jews don't believe in the afterlife, but maybe Harvey's looking down. Who knows? I, I know Jews don't believe in afterlife, but I have a superstitious feeling that when something good happens for the boys, I feel like he's present, that he knows. It's just, I want to believe that. I'd like to believe that too. So what do you want older and younger readers to get out of this book, Last Things? Well, I'm hoping actually that young adults or teenagers will read it as well so they wouldn't feel so isolated Mm -hmm. and not feel so stigmatized. My two younger sons both had friends who lost parents Mm -hmm. in high school. Mm -hmm. So it's not as rare as we would like to think that parents die when you're in high school or younger. And what I I want to come out of this book is, first of all, I want people who are caregivers or who lose somebody to not feel so isolated Mm -hmm. and not feel so guilty because you end up feeling like it's partly your fault this happens. And I'm hoping that we as a culture can talk better about disease and death so that people don't feel stigmatized. Like there's something, you know, you're contagious. Yeah. Like, you know, pe- if people, you know, I mean, if you tell people you have cancer, your friends back off like you're going to get it from touching you. Obviously, you can't get that. But that's a, and maybe that's human nature. But I think it's particularly American. I think you're right. I'd like to know what sort of things do you take pleasure in now? Well, um, <laughs> I'm, I certainly take pleasure in my boys. I, I'm still writing and illustrating my own books. I started a small publishing company of children's books. So I'm publishing other people's work, partly in reaction to what's happening in publishing, that there are fewer independent small presses, Mm -hmm. and we need them now more than ever. And I'm also working on an animated adaptation of the Miller's Notebook series that Amazon's going to be doing. That's a whole different skill set that I'm going to have to learn. An animated series? Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I think that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, good. Well, Marissa, are there any last thoughts that you would like to leave the listeners with? Well, I think it's a, it's a good graphic novel for people who have never read a graphic novel. So I try to make it as accessible as possible because I have a lot of friends who don't like graphic novels because they feel like the text is really small and you have to figure out where your eye is supposed to go. So I tried to make it graphic novel for beginners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it works. Does that make sense? Totally. You know, at first when I was getting towards the end, I thought the panels are getting bigger. Is she using half a page now? Well, I did that particularly to pause. Uh-huh. I mean, you take more time. I mean, pacing yeah. happens with the panel size. So when I wanted things to speed up, I'd have more panels. And when I wanted you to, there's certain times, I think there are only a few times when there's a single page spread. Uh-huh. Like after Harvey gets the trach, right. when he dies. When he dies I mean, those are like, you've got to stop. Just right. pause. That's really interesting. The writer's secrets. You also only used black and whites, a lot of gray tones. Right. All of your right. other books are in color, right? That's true. Uh-huh. Yeah. It just didn't even occur to me that it ever could be in color. It just seems to me this had to be black and white. Well, it works. It is a kind of gray story, don't you think? Yeah. I got to buy a hard copy. This PDF isn't going to do it for me, but I'll do it. (laughs) The publisher would send you one. If I'd known you didn't have one, they would have sent you one. Oh. I still can't. I'm sure the publisher would be happy to send you one. Author and illustrator Marissa Moss has written over 50 children's books, from picture books to middle grade and young adult novels. She's also the founder of Creston Books, an independent children's publishing house, and she gives presentations and journaling workshops for teachers, kids, and anyone wanting writing tips. We've been talking today about Marissa's recently published book, Last Things, a graphic memoir about ALS. 
a beautifully rendered, I mean truly beautifully rendered, gripping story of loss and devotion, love and resilience. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to the book as well as to Marissa's website. So everyone, please go buy this book. Marissa, thanks so much for being on the show and thanks for writing this book. It's amazing. Oh, thank you so much for having me and asking such thoughtful questions. I mean, some of them I've never heard. And I've had a lot of interviews, so you came up with some really interesting ones. Oh, cool. Great. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, if you're getting something out of it, I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone and your stories matter. So share this with your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.